Lord, help us find our way back to your word this morning to find our way back to your view of us and back to your garden that you created for us. We say these things in your son's name, amen. Um, when I was little, I went to Kenroy Elementary School. I, I, I just have in my notes pause and see what will happen because I don't, because <laughs> uh, that wasn't, a, this, that was in Eastern Anchi where I grew up. Um, and I was an incredibly curious little kid. My favorite picture uh, that I have from my childhood is my kindergarten picture. Um, I'm an English professor, so I'm going to name, I'm going to say some things and we'll talk about maybe predestination later on. Um, but my favorite picture is if I'm in front of these book, fake bookcases, you know, like the screens they would put up behind you for, for school pictures. I'm, I'm in front of this fake set of books in a sweater vest with a little tie on. <laughs> um, I was the smallest kid in my school until the seventh grade. I was incredibly tiny. Uh, and I was incredibly curious. And so I went off to kindergarten. I thought I had man, this was everything. There were all these new people. We were asked to like read and learn stuff. And it was the best time of my life. It was like being in paradise. And at the center of my paradise was this incredible 30-foot structure that we referred to as the big toy. Now, for some of you, big toys were things that you could play on as a child. And now I know that you have to just sit and look at each other and not touch so that you don't get hurt. But when I was in school... When I was in school, it was basically a free-for-all. It was like Thunderdome from a Mad Max movie. Go out, see what happens. And at the center of my paradise was the big toy. And the big toy had the most incredible feature on it. And it was this tube slide. Right? Do you guys remember tube slides? Yeah. And I should tell you a little bit about myself. I had a very active imagination. I kind of think of myself as a, both a, I was a curator and a creative person. Uh, my brother tells a story about how whenever we would play G.I. Joes, we would never actually get to play because I would just spend all my time putting the G.I. Joes in the right positions, right? I would love to curate these kind of things. It was just end scene, right? And it looked perfect. <laughs> we don't need to play with them, Tim. The story is telling it to us, okay? And, and he would get so mad and just storm out of the room. And the other thing, I was a pretty creative little kid. Part of that is because I was wildly small um, and spent a lot of time by myself reading books and thinking of things. <laughs> um, and to give you an example of this, one time when we moved um, to a new house, I took all of the boxes that we moved with, and I built it to scale cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> and in the morning before I would get ready for school, I would sit inside of this cockpit and just play the last scene of Return of the Jedi. I would blow up the Death Star, and I'd be on my way to school. Um, so this is, I'm this little weird, you know, uh, kid, and at the center of my paradise is this tube slide. And the game that we would play on the tube slide is black hole. I'm going to walk you through this. The, the big toy was a space station, um, Russian-American. It was a real collaborative kind of situation. <laughs> um, and we were uh, explorers in outer space. Tough thing, tough break, though. The tube slide was also the door out, and the door had blown off, so it was just sucking kids out constantly, right? Real, real challenge. Our only safety device was a jump rope 
uh, that we would hook to the top of the tube slide, slide somebody down and they would dangle, and then we would try to pull them back up, right? An incredible game. And we used those jump ropes. I don't know if you guys have ever seen these. They were the old jump ropes. They had the little plastic pieces on them. So when you, when you jump, they would click. Um, <laughs> jump rope for heart, four years in a row. Um, <laughs> that was a freebie. I didn't even have that one in the notes. It just came. Praise God. Um, so I was, so we were playing this game, uh, and one day, I, unfortunately, had gotten sucked out into space, um, and I was dangling. And I was usually the easiest, because I was so tiny, and I'd usually just get, like, yanked up and <laughs> get a sliver as I slid across the wood fl floor or something. Um, but the bell rang. So I was just left hanging there. Now, the great part of that story is, one, I'm leaving you hanging because I'm hanging. Um, so let's jump into Genesis. <laughs> One of the things I'm so happy about is being part of a community that can ask really hard questions about the scripture. Um, and I know that a lot of you have expressed over the last few weeks, it feels like we've sort of been swimming in the ocean. There's just been so much going on. And I'm so appreciative of being in a community that's willing to swim and also to be in a community that has a staff um, that's really, they're really good coaches. They really help us learn how to swim. And so I would love to say that we are going to, uh, this is going to be easier today. Unfortunately, I think we're still going to be challenged with some stuff, but I'll try to make it as manageable as possible. Um, the beauty about stories is that they help us understand the world. Um, and they help us not only understand the world, they help us understand a little bit about who's telling them and about who they're being told to. And stories have this beautiful way of helping us make sense of things, right? How many of you have like a grandfather or a mom or an aunt or a friend who's told you lots of these little parables and sometimes you have that moment in life and that rings through their head and you're like, I got this, right? Stories have this really incredible way of breaking into our lives when we need them. And if we listen closely to stories, they tell us a little bit about our neighbors, about our values. They tell us about how we see ourselves and how we understand our purpose. And I think in the first three chapters of Genesis, uh, we see the same kind of work taking place. We are learning about how Israel viewed herself in relation to Yahweh. And by understanding their relation to Yahweh, Israel's, Israel's also being reminded about the character of God and how God, in turn, views them. However, one of the challenges we face when we read the creation story is that we do not live in the ancient world. We are very 21st century people, and we love stories that are linear and that move towards something new, okay? That is almost the exact opposite of what the ancient world viewed a good story to be like. Um, our stories tend to always be about moving forward, right? What's the next thing? How does a character develop? How do they change? And even stories when you come back to a place, really the point of the story is how have you changed since you came back, right? And that's a little bit different than the ancient Near East and the stories they told. Those stories were circular and recursive, and there should be a slide coming up. This is a pretty good diagram of what the purpose of story was like in the ancient world. And the idea 
was that a good story put you in a place and explained who you were, and then the events of that story explained what it took for you to return to that place at the beginning, right? Your purpose was at the start, you had these events, and you returned to this place of origins, right? Origins were often the place uh, where the perfect or paradise existed. And there was, there's lots of stories in the ancient world that have gardens at the center of those stories. Um, progress was not the central concern of the ancient Near East. Their stories were typically circular and recursive. And we understand these stories as being sort of rhythmic. It's the other thing you often see in ancient narratives is that they're rhythmic. They often correspond with the seasons of the year, the cycles of ceremonies, as we've been talking about the blessing of temples. And the idea is that a rooted life is one that is rhythmic and moving in this kind of rhythm that is deep and ancient. And the garden as a metaphor, not only in Genesis, but in other ancient literature, is this kind of central focus of that rhythm, right? Because a garden is about things that grow in certain cycles, you eat from the trees, you plant, you till, you care for. Your year is based around this deep centering sort of place, right? To be in right relation to the world and to God is to be in this kind of rhythmic ancient order. So Yahweh, Israel's God, brings order out of chaos, and the metaphor for that order that he brings is this garden that we've been spending our time in the last few weeks. So are we tracking with that making sense? Okay. So today what I want to think about is we've been talking a lot about what, how did God create? What does this mean? And today I want to talk about who did God create, right? Who's placed at the center of that garden? And like good ancient stories, what do those characters do? What are their intentions? What are their goals? If we understand the idea of humanity that's placed at the center of the garden, then we get to understand this idea of who we are and how we relate to God. Um, and I think the biggest challenge here is just that we don't think in those kinds of circular recursive ways. We want to know what's next. Uh, and instead, what I want us to keep in mind today is this idea of return, to come back to. So our big questions for today are going to be, what were we designed for? What is humanity's purpose? How did Israel talk about creation? What does that mean? Next week, we're going to talk about the fall, and so I'm not going to spend too much time there today. Um, Kevin's going to tackle that. My job is just to get us to the fall. Seems like an odd job description. I'm just here to get you to the fall, said the snake. Um, uh, but to do that, I think it's going to be helpful for us to think about where did we fall from and why do we hope to return there? Does that sound like a good plan? Yeah? Okay. So we have all of these creation narratives, and creation narratives in the ancient world are designed to tell us about a couple of things. One, who is the God that we worship, and what is the, our relation to that God? Basic principle of ancient creation stories. Who is the deity that we serve? What's our relation to them? 
And so I want to pick up from where Russ has left us last few weeks, and I want us to come back to this idea of the creation story in Genesis is a story that is being written during the Babylonian captivity. So it's Israel looking back on its history and the story that they are, have been telling for a long time about the creation of the world is that God made them, put them in this garden, and this garden is the thing that had the holy of holies. And so the creation story, right, climaxes in this holy of holies, and it's also the story that Israel tells itself throughout history, and it's connected to their practices in the temple. Are we remembering this stuff? I think this is where I'm supposed to say, if you don't know this, please refer to the podcast. Um, so th- we have this idea of the temple and the story of creation corresponding to the ways in which the Hebrew people understood experiencing God in those places. So let's pick up there and go to Genesis 126. Because we have this really interesting thing that happens that's really, really different than other ancient Near Eastern stories. God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then in the next passage, Yahweh continues by blessing humankind and reminding them that they have access to all things. So he shows them where they can eat and the animals and all these kinds of things. But what's really important for us to notice here is that there's not references to sacrifice or to offerings, right? You and I and the creator king remain in the garden together in the holy of holies. This is really, really profound and really, really different than other creation narratives. Um, In ancient Near Eastern traditions, creation narratives were intended to climax with the image bearer. Now, we have that language in our story, but here's where it's different. Um, in, In other sort of religious texts, the image bearer is the god that the people worship. So the image that they are creating is some kind of icon or idol that they're going to place in the temple that is then going to rule over them. Um, And this is important to note because the holy place of the temple was reserved for the deity, and then humans were forced to enter that space sort of at their own peril, right? And you were at your own peril because you had to make sure that you brought the appropriate sacrifice, that you brought the appropriate offering, in order to appease this angry God that was resting in this earthly dwelling, right? Sort of having to slum and be in the temple with humans. The second thing that's interesting to note is that um, the custom for many of these uh, religions or cults, sometimes theologians will call them, uh, was that there would be a ceremony at the end of the construction of the temple when the image of the idol was placed into it, And then there would be a ceremony in which the people, the cult, the tribe, the group, whatever, would breathe onto the image and the idol, and that would bring the idol to life in this place. So now the idol was ruling over this place in which these people lived, but it was this sort of ironic thing because the idol manifesting their presence made clear 
that there was a distinction between humans and the God. Okay? The idol coming to life made clear that there was a distinction between this deity and the people in which it ruled over. And so in some ways, not only was the idol imprisoned in the temple, but the people were now imprisoned to the idol, right? This sort of really sad symbiotic relationship. All right. The Hebrew story is a little bit different, right? So in the Hebrew creation story, who is the image bearer? We are. Right? Who places the idol at the center? Yahweh does. Right? He makes us and forms us and places us in the center of the Holy of Holies. And not only that, he breathes life into us. Right? The climax of Israel's creation story is not the animation of a deity that has created the earth by tearing apart other gods and using their entrails as land. I mean, this is some, if you, if, you, if, if you get into Mesopotamian creation literature, this is the stuff, um, right? So rather than a god that has sort of won out in some sort of like cosmic MMA over other gods, our god creates this beautiful garden and places us at the center, forms us, and then breathes into us. Our god is not a serpent-headed monster devouring time and space, Right? Uh, Rick Watts teaches at uh, Regent University up in Canada, says it this way, the cosmos is seen as Yahweh's temple place, and the climax of creation is the installation of humanity as his image bearer within it. It then maintains that the exodus from Egypt, Israel's return from exile, and God's new exodus, new creational work in Christ Jesus are best understood in terms of the restoration of the defaced image bearer and consequently the restoration of the cosmos as Yahweh's temple place. For Watts, he sees this, these central images in Genesis of God bringing about humankind in the center of the temple, breathing life into us as the place that all of our stories return to, right? That Jesus himself is a reminder of returning to the garden. We're coming up on Easter. My favorite passage in all of Scripture is simply this, and confusing him for a gardener, right? That's the response to the resurrected Jesus, right? So this idea that we move back towards a thing. And if all of this wasn't enough, that God would create us and set us in a garden and breathe life into us and celebrate with us, never being far from us, he also does this other really amazing thing. He says, I want you to be curators of my creation. And so what does God do? He allows us to name the animals, right? You ever hung out with a little kid when they make up names for stuff? Have you ever had the instinct to just slap them and say, no, that's a zebra? <laughs> now that question, if your answer was yes, you're a monster. Uh, <laughs> that's easy to figure out. But for most of us, we said, no, of course not. Of course not. What do I care that you called it striped horse? What do I care? And this is the very first vocation that we have, right, is that we're set in this beautiful garden, and God brings to us the animals, and it's this image of your job is to make sense of this place with me, to curate, right, to name things, to put them in the right spot. 
<laughs> That's probably just an English professor <laughs> wanting to make fun of scientists. Uh, your job is just to kind of like name stuff and put it in the right spot. It's adorable. Um, <laughs> I'll probably get hounded for that one by somebody. Um, okay. So he allows us to curate. Uh, but then there's this other thing that happens, which is even more amazing to me at the center of the story. So he allows us to curate, to name, to work with him to see what's going on in the world, but that's not enough, right? He gives us something else. So we go to Genesis 20, 23, 2, sorry, Genesis 2, 20 through 23. But, the, but for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner, so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman for out of man this one was taken. We get to curate the garden. We get to name and participate with God. But then in this incredible act, right, and something that's completely different than the rest of the ancient Near East, all of these stories that are about people being afraid of their gods, Yahweh not only allows us to participate in his kingdom by naming the animals, he says, I want to actually give you my creative power. I want you to be able to make things. And so at the center of this story is this moment when God says, not only do you get to curate, but you get to create. And so he makes man and he makes woman, which are these metaphors for people and humankind, and he gives them the ability to create. But as we have seen earlier on with God and the way that he speaks with Adam, the deep and ancient rhythms of the garden uh, require that we understand our relation to each other and our relation to Yahweh. So while Yahweh makes man and he makes woman, he then does this other really amazing thing. Right, and we're gonna unpack this a little bit here. The language that's being used here, I think we're actually quite familiar with. We just don't often think about it in terms of the garden. So let's skip ahead to Genesis 15, story of Abram. And Yahweh said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought all of these things and cut them in two, laying each half against the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Adam drove them, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces, and on that day the Lord made covenant with Abram. So here we see that the order of the garden has been supplanted by the chaos of the world once again. No longer does Yahweh bring the beast of the fields and the birds of the air to humankind, but rather Abram is the one that brings these creatures as offerings to Yahweh. And then we have this wonderfully, oh, this is, l l just listen to this. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. 
and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Oh, so good. Right? And we are told then that in, during Abram's deep sleep, Yahweh passes between the sacrificed animals, reminding Abram of his promise to Abram and his people. In the ancient Near East, these covenant ceremonies uh, were often initiated when you were either giving away land or uh, during wedding ceremonies or any kind of thing that required a relationship between two or more parties. And in order for both to thrive, they needed to be in some kind of partnership. And so the, the idea was is that you would take these sacrifices, which cost you a lot of money, and you would hack them into pieces. You would tear them apart at the rib and you would walk between them. And the idea as you were walking between them would be to say, look, pal, if you break your covenant with me, you're going to end up like this three-year-old heifer. Not a two-year-old heifer, a three-year-old heifer, which must mean something. I don't know a lot about heifers, but that was serious business back then. And so at the most basic level, covenants were intended to remind parties that they had to sustain the symbiotic relationship, that in order for one to thrive, the other must thrive. And at great cost, at great cost to myself, I will destroy everything you have if you break covenant with me. So it was a really cheery ceremony. And this is the kind of covenant that Yahweh makes with Abram, only there's a catch. Who doesn't pass between the carcasses? Abram. He's sleeping. Only Yahweh walks through. And, he, and, and in this moment, Yahweh is reminding Abram that while you have been expelled from the garden, there will be these moments of order and of rhythm in the midst of the chaos when you remain close to me. And I, Yahweh states, will never leave you, nor will I ask you to make a covenant with me that I know you are not going to be able to keep. Just stay sleeping. In fact, I will pass through and hold the entire thing together. It will only be my body that is broken. Wink, wink, nod, nod, Easter, crucifixion, everything about the Bible speaks to this moment. It will only be my body that passes through that is broken for you. So let's go back to Genesis 2. But Adam had no suitable helper to be found, so the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up that place with flesh. So the first thing to notice is that we have another moment of deep sleeping, but this deep sleeping is not accompanied with the impending darkness and doom, right? And in fact, uh, Theologians John Walton and N.T. Wright note that this use of the phrase deep sleep in some ancient texts is also a way to talk about the idea of a kind of visionary state, to see an eternal truth that Yahweh is bringing to you. And so Adam enters into this deep sleep where Yahweh is speaking and being with him. And then we have this incredible moment that we talked about a little bit last week, right, where Yahweh takes the rib of the man. Takes the rib, flays him open in two halves, and walks between them. Right? We know this story. This is covenant language. 
So now we have to ask this question of what's going on in this covenant, right? And I think there's two things. One, Yahweh is making covenant with all of humankind, saying, I am imbuing with you this creative force, the ability to make families and cultures, to grow, to expand, to go out into the world. Genesis 24, 25, therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh, right? Part of this ceremony is this powerful imbuing of creative force. You're not just curators, you're creators, right? Quite literally, your own bodies will make things that I will bless and weave in the womb, right? This beautiful language. But then there's this other part to this. And the other part of this covenant is that you will be in covenant to each other. Thriving will be because both of you are from the same thing, right? This powerful thing where not only is the covenant with what God is giving to his people, but what God is expecting of his people in order to thrive, that you would be the kind of people that would love and care for each other completely and wholly, that you would become one flesh. And so this covenantal scene is the climax of the creation story. How many of you think the climax of the creation story is getting kicked out? That's how I was taught. I always thought, oh, the garden, that's when we got kicked out. No, 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 no. That's not the climax. That's not who you are. That's scene two. Who you are is this, the kind of people that Yahweh formed, that breathed life into, that gave the opportunity to curate his creation, and the ability to be creators to make families and culture and language and art and food. The covenantal scene is the climax of the creation story. Yahweh made a temple called the earth, filled with beauty and wonder, a world that brings order to the chaos. And then Yahweh animates his creation, breathing into humankind and placing them in a garden, the place that signifies the holy of holies. And as if this weren't already enough, Yahweh blesses us with the ability to create and reminds humanity through a beautiful vision of covenant that we are inextricably bound to each other. And Yahweh looks out on this ordered world, on the people animated by his breath, and he says, this is good. This is good. And I think we still have these moments when we remember that this is good. That when our lives are organized to these deep rhythms that bring order out of chaos. When we move from season to season in perfect step with Yahweh's creation song. I think they still happen. I think they happen when our words reach each other with clarity. When our eyes meet another's and we hold each other up in that space between. Those moments we know we are loved, and those moments when we know we are capable of loving other people, the conversation at the dinner table, picking fruit in the spring. We have these moments when the garden smashes back into our lives, and the story helps us understand who we are, what we were intended for, and to which we'll return and I think as the people of Jesus, we have to hang on to these moments and claim them for what they are, reminders of the holy places to which we were intended. 
don't have a wonderful time with friends where you all feel loved and say, wasn't that great wine? Don't have a moment where someone says something to you and it fits perfectly with what's going on and say, wow, you're real smart. Own those moments and say, those are the times when the garden breaks back into life, right? We are to be a peculiar people, and part of our peculiarity will be the fact that we claim truth in a world that is completely filled with chaos, right? That we take those moments and say, the first time I saw my daughter, everything in the entire world was perfect. The room was filled with light. God was in there. Every part of my being understood everything for one single second, and then it went away. But that's the story that I'm going to tell, is that for one little moment, the garden broke back into my life. This is a long and good story. It's the story to which we are bound. It's our origin story, right? Hasn't Disney made like a bajillion dollars off of origin stories? Have you ever wondered where Ant-Man's boot came from? <laughs> Come see Ant-Man's boot. Um... <laughs> <laughs> um, that's not a movie um, this is our origin story right this is what we remember this is what we're trying to get back to <sighs> but my job was to get us to the fall so something happened along the way that got us off beat something about an apple and a liar and a misunderstanding of who we were Something happened and we forgot why and how we were made and where we were supposed to be. So I wish I could end today on a joyful note. In a place where we can see what's next and understand who God is and celebrate Easter, but my job was to get us to the fall. So this little tiny boy who likes wearing sweater vest is hanging from a tube slide and the bell rings and everybody runs off. And I try to climb my way up, and as you can imagine, I'm one gifted with great strength. So that doesn't work very well, so I start tugging really hard to try and get up the rope, right, or to get the rope undone. But I'm stuck in the tube slide, and then all of a sudden, there's this little jerk. <laughs> there's a little the entire jump rope breaks to pieces. All those little plastic bits. And so I slide down the tube slide, my little tiny baby hands, about this tall, and I try to gather up all the little plastic pieces. Right? And I can't fit all the plastic pieces in my arms because they're too tiny. And I'm too small. And I start walking back towards my classroom, dragging this rope with all these plastic pieces. And I knock on the door, and I'm crying. And Miss Nelson, jet black hair, most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my entire life. I remember everything about her. She was brilliant and lovely and wonderful. And she opens up the door, and she says, where are you? Where were you? Where were you? And I don't think that she was angry with me. I think she just wanted to know where I was. But in that moment, guess what, y'all? I realized that I was small and I was weak 
and I was little, and people made fun of me, and I didn't have a lot of friends, and I'm not sure that you're going to be really popular if all you want to do is read books and make Millennium Falcons in your basement. And all of a sudden, all the things that I had loved, my little paradise, right, with my beautiful big toy in the middle, everything came crashing down. And at that moment, I realized who I was. I started telling myself a story about who I was, and it was a lie. Kevin's going to pick up next week. Let's, let's pray.